Well, you, uh, I hope that was fun for you too. I don't know what you would say if you're an adult in the room, what you think heaven would be like, uh, but we'll talk about that a little bit in a minute. Uh, one of uh, the realities, many of you know, um, one of my homes growing up was in the Caribbean. Uh, parents are missionaries in Grenada and Barbados. And one thing that I learned as a kid growing up is when you grow up on a Caribbean island, there's always a beach to go to, which is fun if you like the beach. And if you don't care for the beach, there's still a beach to go to. Right? That's just the way it is. Um, and I learned a little bit about the tide as I grew up, uh, and I didn't know what it was at first, and later I came to understand what high tide and low tide is, and I learned that tide is like an invisible but powerful force that, that moves uh, oceans, uh, really, that might be a poor way to put it, but, you know, understanding that if I want to go boogie boarding, all right, I need to wait for high tide, and that's when the waves are really going to come. And as I think about what I want to talk about this morning, I would say that there's a lot of things like the tide in our lives, things that are invisible but powerful. I might even say love is like that. I can't see it, but it moves us, right? I can't see it. I can see expressions of love, but I can't pull it out of me and see it. Same for regret, right? I can't see regret. I can see the effects of regret or what I've done to cause myself regret, but I can't see it. It's invisible but powerful. It moves things. And the thing I want to talk about this morning, because I think the Apostle Paul talks about it, is an invisible and yet powerful force that I would argue drives most of our days, whether we verbalize it or not, and that is a word called ambition. 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 What is it that you get up really wanting to get after? What is it that really moves you? What is it that, like the tide, it can ebb and flow, but it does drive you. It moves you forward. I can't pull ambition out of me and see it but I can see the effects of it for sure. What I want to talk about this morning when I think about ambition, I'm just going to describe it this way. This is just my, my description. This is not Webster's. This is incomplete from a dictionary definition. But this morning, this is how I'm talking about ambition. Ambition describes those times in our lives when we want to, quote unquote, take hold of something. Like I see it, and I want to go get it. All right? There's a team. I want to make the team. I want to make the starting lineup. I'm going to go get it. There's a new job, I want to go get it. There's a promotion, I want to go get it. I just went to the doctor, he said I need to lose 20 pounds. <clears throat> I got to go get it. I need to take hold of something. I have a health problem, I see my kids going in a bad direction, I need to change my habits so I can be with them. I want to take hold of that. Whatever it is that is that thing for you, that's what I'm describing as ambition. Ambition, it's that describes those times in your life when you want to take hold of something. And I would argue that all of us every week are ambitious towards something. We want to take hold of something, even if the taking hold of is I want to keep life the same. I don't want to let the, the winds of change blow through my family. I don't want to let these people influence. I want to take hold of keeping things just as they are. That ambition drives all of us and drives us regularly. And what I think Paul is saying this morning about ambition, especially in light of this series in which we're talking about the secret of being content, Paul writes again this letter to the Philippians that we're in, and toward the end of it, he says, I've, come, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. And I read the whole letter through that lens. And so here's what I want to say about ambition as it relates to contentment, that contentment, contentment actually ties our ambition to heavenly and not earthly gains. If we want to pursue contentment, our ambition needs to be tied to heavenly and not earthly gains. Now, I've been processing this a lot this week, but 
for you, as you read this, you might think, well, this is maybe the most churchy thing I've ever heard in my whole life. Like, of course it is. What do I expect to hear from church? Why don't you focus on heaven? Your life will be fine. I mean, isn't that what this guy's saying? Maybe we can just go home and, uh, you know, have lunch early. Is this all it is? Contentment ties ambition to heavenly and not earthly gains. And here's what I want to say about this. I don't think any of us, if you are, uh, consider yourself a Christian or a follower of Christ, I don't think anybody's going to argue with this principle as if we don't understand it. We understand it. The problem for me, and maybe the problem for you, is that I don't know what to do with it on a regular basis. It's not that I don't get it. Oh, I get it. It's just that it's true. It's one of those statements that's true, but safe. It's not going to mess with you at all, right? It's true, all right? But safe. But what if I could drive it a little bit further into two practical ways that might help you Look at your own ambition in your life. What drives your week? What drives the way you interact with your spouse, with your business, with your school, with your employees, and with your coworkers? What is it that actually drives you? What if there are two ways, and this is what Paul gives this morning, I would argue, he gives two concrete ways for us to consider what drives us and to consider whether our ambition, the things that actually do move us on a weekly basis, are tied to heavenly and not earthly gains. So I want to take it out of the realm of the safe and drive it down into maybe messing with us in a loving, clear way this morning. All right? Messing, you, know, you can decide if this happens or not. But anyway, all right, let's get into it. Um, we're in the book of Philippians. So the, the book of Philippians, if you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible in the pew in our, in the pew, the pew that we got rid of a couple of years ago. You can chase some down. They're somewhere around the world. I don't know where they are now. There's also chairs we put in their place. So sorry about that. There's a Bible near you somewhere. You can steal it from your neighbor or take it from the chair. It's our gift to you. Philippians chapter 3 is where we are. It's in the right two-thirds of your Bible. And um, we're going to be reading, uh, beginning at verse 12 is where we're going to start this morning for the, the text. But before I jump into that, I want to take us backwards for a minute into where we finished last week, because this week doesn't make sense if we don't remember last week. And I don't remember what I had for breakfast this morning, so I'm not going to remember last week. Maybe you're like me. So back up with me to verse 7 of chapter 3, just to recap what we did and where we finished last week. So beginning at verse 7 now, Paul wrote, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage or rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And then I love to finish here in 10 and 11. He says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So Paul finishes this is a beautiful section that prioritizes Christ above all, that says of all the things that we chase in this life, in light of Christ's ability to tackle death and be resurrected from it, there's nothing that compares to Christ's power to be resurrected from the dead. But if anything does, then Paul would probably give us permission to chase that. If we could make enough money, if we could be healthy enough, if we could be strong enough and beautiful enough, and that would help us survive death, he might say, go chase that. But since nothing else can, he's like, I want to pursue Christ because only he has the power that resurrected him from the dead. That's his context, for which he then says in verse 12, 
Not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I'm just going to look at that verse to start. First of all, he says, not that I have already obtained all this. Now, that gives me breathing room in my faith. I don't know about you, but many times I have felt over the years like I'm not doing enough or consistent enough or not enough enough in the consistency of my Christian faith. And here's Paul, who actually, you know, wrote the Bible, saying, not that I've actually already obtained all this or have arrived at my goal. And so if you've ever felt like you're not quite measuring up, take a breath and enjoy Paul's honesty for a minute. It isn't about performing. It is about this journey, this pursuit, this ongoing walk of faith. Just, I haven't really actually arrived at the things that I even say I value. That's my summary. But he does finish the verse this way. He says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Now, what's he saying here? Taking hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So you'll see there, to take holds in that verse. Right? I'm going to take hold of something, but the thing that I want to take hold of, and this is that word ambition. This is why I use that. This is that word ambition. I want to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has already taken hold of me. The second take hold of is more powerful than the first, and here's why. Because it's in the past tense and it's done. So what Jesus Christ, what he says there. Christ Jesus has already has took hold of me. He has already taken hold of me. There is something in the past that is secure about that. What's that mean? It's important to understand the second phrase to make sense of the first. What I think he's saying is Christ has taken hold of me, and what he just said is the resurrection of Christ is what he is reaching for, if you will, so that I can somehow do this. Christ has taken hold of us in the sense that his death on the cross and resurrection from death comes out to grab me, comes out to reach for me. He has chosen to take hold of me through securing salvation through his death. That is an event in the past that is secured and set with ongoing consequences in the future. Christ has taken hold of me. He has made the decision to go to the cross and in his death and now in his resurrection, his decision to offer salvation has come and taken hold of me. I haven't secured it myself. So Paul wants to then take a hold of that, of which Christ has already taken a hold of him. In other words, this is my argument, what Paul is saying here is this, that he is tying, he is tying our ambition to heavenly and not earthly gains. What he's saying is, Christ has taken hold of me. He's offered salvation to me. I want to take hold of the reality the reality that I have a future in heaven. And so I want my days, I want my ambitions, I want the things that drive me to constantly be taking hold of a life in which I am seeing the reality and living out the reality that Christ already has secured my salvation. I don't want to be distracted just by what this world offers. Christ has already taken hold of me and saved me from death. Now I want to live in light of that. And this is why I would argue that he's tying our ambition to what has already been accomplished for us, tying our ambition to heavenly and not earthly gains. I hope that makes sense. Still, however, still, however, my problem exists, and that is that this concept 
isn't something that we struggle to understand. It's just that we struggle to know what to do with it. Again, most Christians would not look at this and say, I think this is a bad idea to think about my life in terms of heaven. We understand it. We just don't know what to do with it. And so if I can push a little bit further, let's read the next couple of verses together because Paul pushes further. He says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. Again, he is honest about his progression in his faith. But one thing I do, all right, one thing I do, and here's the first thing. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So I would say this, and here's my the first thing. If I were to bring down this idea of how do we tie our ambition, which is invisible, like the tide, but powerful, it drives us. How do I tie my ambition to heaven and not earth? Because that is really theoretical. How do I do it? First, first, forget what is behind, is what Paul says. First, I forget what is behind. Here's my starting point. The first thing I do, I'm going to forget what is behind. Now, when I read that, and when I look at that, I think, because that's right there. Right? Hopefully you saw it. He said, one thing I do, middle of verse 13, toward the end of it, is forgetting what is behind. When I read that, at first I think, okay, that's wonderful. It aligns with a Western value. The, one of the key points of our Western culture's value is that um, the future is better than the past, meaning is located more in the future and where we're going, where our company is going, where our health is going, where our family is going, we tend to look toward the future. And we hope and plan and create structures so that our lives generally try to go up and to the right. We wanna forget the way to the past and move forward. And so in the West, this can really attract us. In the East, it's different. Not all meaning is located in the future. In fact, a lot of meaning is located in the past and what was. And so when Paul says, forget what is behind, what does he actually mean? Because I would argue that this is impossible to actually do. Like if I were to ask you, we were to sit there and you were to come to my house this afternoon and I'm under a blanket, and I were to ask you, hey, can you tell me, uh, can you, let's talk for a minute, let's get to know each other a little bit more than normal. Can you tell me, did you ever have a moment in middle school or high school where you felt embarrassed or ashamed? Remember what it was like to walk into the cafeteria and have no place to sit? Did anyone ever say something in the hallway about you to kind of hit hard? You buried it in you for a little bit? Because if any of you have that memory, well, then you haven't done this, right? You haven't forgotten what is behind. Because I have that memory. In fact, I'd argue it's impossible. Once you start remembering even the faithfulness of God, you can't separate the bad things in your past from the good things in your past. You remember it all. Memory is like a time traveler that goes back in time and it recalls both the good and the bad, where God was and where he wasn't, where people helped you and when they hurt you. It's impossible to actually do this, to, to forget what is behind. I don't know what Paul means when he says forget what is behind because Paul, I would argue, I can't forget what is behind. And I would also argue sometimes I don't want to forget what is behind. I want to remember 
I want to remember that retreat where I committed my life to Christ, right? Like that was a key moment. Just a couple weeks ago, we had baby dedication up here. I think it was last week. Like I want parents to remember what was behind so that it serves as a flagpole for them for the future. Like I want to remember my wedding vows. I don't want to forget that. You know, that's an important thing. I don't want to forget that. So what do you mean, Paul, when you say forget what is behind? What are you actually talking about? Because just in the past chapter, Paul himself he recounted to his audience, he said, listen, I was a, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Of Pharisees, I was the most righteous. And he went through his own past. He pulled from his past to say, I used to be like this. So Paul, whatever you mean, it can't mean that you've actually forgotten the memory of it. And here's a critical learning for me. And you can discuss whether this is helpful for you, but this has been really helpful for me. In my experience in understanding this concept of forgetting what is behind, I would put it this way, that forgetting what is behind does not mean the memory is lost, but the power of it is. Those are two completely different things. Forgetting what is behind, it doesn't mean that you will actually forget the event. The moment will still impact you. You can't just choose to forget things. It isn't possible. And some things you don't want to forget. But it is possible that the power of it over you is possible to, quote-unquote, forget. What do I mean by the power of it? Here's what I mean. Some memories, some memories have the power to motivate us. There are some who are, when they were young, their, their father or their mother sat with them and talked to them about the power of the bottom line in their company, how exciting it was to, thrilling it is, to close a business deal. And as a little kid, impressionable, grows up and they learn whether right or wrong, they learn that one of the biggest values in life is closing the deal, making money. It's a, it's a memory that whether intentional or not, whether explicit or not, it, it motivates them. It motivates them either to get an education, to go right into the workforce, to start their own company, whatever it is that they're going to do. There's, there's a motivating power behind that. Some experience that the opposite way when their dad or mom or a friend made a comment about their weight maybe on prom night, or about the way they looked. And it motivated them to all of a sudden say, whoa, that's how people see me. <laughs> I need to lose weight. I need to, <laughs> wow. I, need to, I need to change some things. All right, I need to be motivated to pursue and chase something, a better body image, because I don't ever want to go through that shame again. Memories have the power to motivate us, and they have the power to tie to our ambition. And because ambition is invisible, we don't always see it, but like the tide, it drives us all the time to take hold of things that sometimes are just stuck here on earth and aren't placed in heaven. Memories have the power to motivate us. Memories also have the power, and you've experienced this, memories have the power to burden us. This is pain, right? They have the power to burden us. If you've lost friendships, you've felt betrayed, you don't forget those things. You can't. You can't. You might try to put it out of your mind, but you don't actually ever forget it. The memory stays. They have the power to burden you. If you've ever been a victim of abuse, I guarantee you, I guarantee you, you don't forget it. I guarantee you, you don't. And it has the power to burden you, to sit in your soul with a weight that you can't get through. And so when Paul says, forgetting what is behind, I don't think he's calling for us to, to reset, to reboot the computer so that we have back to factory settings, so that we have no recollection of things. No, 
Even he doesn't do that. And even God doesn't call the people of Israel to do that. He wants them to set up stones of remembrance to remember God's faithfulness. So when he says forget what is behind, I would argue he's saying forget not the memory, but the power of it. Now, how do you do that? How, how do you do that? Here's one thing I want to encourage you. Look at the verse again. Look at the verse. He says, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Don't lose that. He is using the imagery. This is athletic imagery. He's talking about the Roman games happening at the time, kind of the early um, predecessor of the Olympic games um, where athletes were straining. Let me just be clear. One should not think this is easy. When he says straining toward what is ahead, he's using an athletic image of an athlete straining toward the line, but it's similar to how we are going to have to live our lives through this. The memories of the past, the things that burden us or motivate us, they are not easy to separate from. Because ambition is invisible, we don't always pull it out of us and set it there and say, oh, I've been been chasing the wrong things. No, we don't do that all the time. We just live. And Paul's saying, I want to encourage you. Consider what motivates you. Consider what burdens you. I want you to forget what is behind. I want you to forget what is behind. I want you to strain toward what is ahead. One should not think this is easy. It is a strain. It is a strain. It is difficult. But it is not impossible. It is difficult, but it isn't impossible. I'll talk more about that in a minute. Paul goes on in verses 15 to 16. Join me there. He says, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently... That too, God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. What is that, Paul? Verse 17. He says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. Now, I think what he does in the second half of this verse is he realizes, this is just me thinking, I could be wrong. Paul's in prison in writing this, and I don't, and he doesn't know whether he's going to survive and come back to the Philippians, whether he's going to see them again or not. I think that's in his mind when he writes this. Because what he's about to do is, is say, follow my example, but I think he knows he may not be around to produce much more of an example in the coming months or years. And, so he goes in back in the verse, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. That is very practical. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For, he says, as often I as often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. If the first thing to do is to forget the past, the second thing that Paul argues here is, I put it this way, the second thing is to watch those whose lives are focused on heaven. This is very, very practical. He's telling them, keep your eyes on those who live like we do. Keep your eyes on those who live like we do. Very practical, practical thing. He talks about keeping your eyes on those who live this way. And then I love verses 18 to 19 in that he contrasts people who live with heaven in view with those who live with earth in view. So again, look at 18 and 19 with me. He said, I've told you before and tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And then he's about to explain who these enemies are, verse 19. Their destiny 
is destruction. Their God is their stomach. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that <laughs> look out for all the people who are gluttonous. That's not what this means. It means their appetites are all that they care to fulfill. Look at the people around you, he's saying, who just care about fulfilling their appetites, whether it's a financial appetite, whether it's a relational appetite, whether it's a, 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 a discipline appetite, whether whatever it is, look at the people who, who just are filling every appetite that they have a desire for. They're trying all that the world has to offer. That's what he's saying. Their God, their God is their appetite. They're free to try everything they want, and that's all that they pursue. And then as a result... It's basically a hedonistic kind of lifestyle. Then their glory is in their shame. They're living dishonorable lives. Living lives where we look at them and be like, ah. Sometimes I think we can feel like those people who are um, the loudest and most powerful, who have the strongest and biggest platform, are the ones whom we should follow. They're the ones making the waves. Right? They're the ones telling us how to run businesses. They're the ones... Maybe the athletes that we follow on Instagram or on TikTok, they're the ones who, as influencers, are kind of defining what beauty is for us. They're the ones who are losing weight or they're the ones making a bunch of money. They're the ones who are making the, the big contracts or wearing the right clothes. And I just want to encourage you, no matter your age, be careful who you follow and be careful whom you read. Be careful about what ambitions drive them because they too have ambitions. They're invisible but powerful. And so as you think about what do I put into my mind, what do I scroll through on a regular basis, who is it that I'm allowing to influence me? Because those whose appetite never gets satisfied with all that they have, those who live as enemies of the cross of Christ and that they don't keep their eyes on heaven, they may give you some good business advice. They may give you some good athletic advice. They may give you some good beauty tips for how to take care of whatever beauty tips you need to be taken care of. But, Paul is saying, be careful. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. And here's the question I'd have for you. As you think about the people around you, who do I know who is living like heaven is their home? Who do I know who's living like this? Just recently, I had the chance to talk to a, uh, an individual who lost their spouse recently. And as you can imagine, that's a deep grief to go through. And as I was talking to them, they were just recounting to me the joy that they're currently experiencing life combined with the hard memory of their spouse's passing. And as they talked, what I was hearing and seeing in them is deep grief at the loss of their spouse and still living in that space of loss. But yet, but yet, even without saying it, a strength for this life because of their hope of heaven with the Lord one day. And so this view that heaven is my home, what Paul's saying is keep your eyes on the people. Keep your eyes on the people. Who is it that you know who's living like heaven is in view? They're currently running their business this way. They're currently leading through school this way. They're currently engaged athletically this way. Heaven is their home. Heaven is their home. Heaven is their home. Their appetites are not their gods. All that this earth has to offer is not their north star. Who is it that you know like that? And he's saying, keep your eyes on those people. You're going to need it. You're going to need it because ambition is invisible, but it is powerful. And every day we're influenced. Every day we're influenced. 
in terms of how we look, what we're chasing, what we're trying to do with our life. And Paul says, be careful with that. Be careful with that thing. That's ambition. If you want contentment, contentment, put it back this way again, contentment. Contentment ties ambition to heavenly and not earthly gains. And so how can I do that? How can I do that? First of all, forget what is behind. Forget what is behind. You're never going to forget the memory. But over time, in relationship, in prayer, in therapy, in friendship, and being in the scriptures, you can release the power of it. Secondly, focus on who's leading you ahead. Focus on who is leading you ahead. It's safe to say, as Christians, we should keep our eyes on heaven. It just doesn't mess with me enough to make it practical. Practically. Is there anything in your past, any memory that is, has the power to motivate you right now that you can't or haven't identified or to burden you to keep you back? Paul's saying, step into that. It may be pain. It may not be. It may be good things just aligned incorrectly. Forgetting the power what is behind and finding those people who are living now with heaven in view. Focus on who's leading you ahead. Those two very tangible, practical things can help you and help me. Remember, contentment. It ties our ambition to heavenly and not earthly gains. Will you pray with me? Our good God and heavenly Father, thanks for the chance to be together this morning. And we're grateful for the scriptures and the history that we can step back into with them. We are grateful that even Paul acknowledged that he didn't nail this right all the time, that he was still on a journey. He's very explicit that even he hasn't obtained all of this. Even he doesn't live this way all the time. So I, I find great support there. I really resonate with that. I need that grace. Maybe we do here too. But I pray for us as we go through our days as we raise our children and we think about what's next after school, as we try to figure out how to make money and how to do it ethically and how to lead a business and how to handle a health crisis, how to grieve the loss of a loved one. I pray that you'd help us to keep heaven in view because our contentment ties our ambition to that. Help us to be able to forget what is behind in the sense of the power that it has to hold us back. I pray that past pain and hurts can be reframed through the lens of redemption and hope. And that the redemption will carry us, not unlike the resurrection of Christ. We can't forget the past but the power of it to hold us back can be loosened. And help us to focus on those who are living like this right now, to spend our time intentionally looking to those who live with heaven in view. So Father, we thank you for these words, thank you for the scriptures, and thank you for the hope they provide us. Give us a courage and grace for what we need here. In Jesus' name we pray.